Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Good news from the conference board. The conference board leading economic index for the United States increased in December. Here to help us understand the details is Ken Goldstein. He is the economist with the conference board, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Ken, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Not only do we have the information for December, but we have a number of revisions. And I'm wondering if you could just lay out the, the situation for us. Well, I, look, the revisions and the rebenchmarking, it's, so, it's, it's data cleaning. Um, and we didn't find out very much that we didn't already know. What is interesting, I think, is that not just this month, but for the last uh, three months, we've seen this pickup in the ISM index for new orders. If you like, that's kind of an intention to new order. So even though the ordering rate itself hasn't picked up, uh, that sort of last uh, you know leg over the fence, if you like, looks like it might be improving. So not only is the economy continuing to move along, with the signal that this is going to continue into the spring, but maybe with a little bit more kick if indeed new orders are going to start to give us uh, more strength. So, Ken, we know that manufacturing is doing well. We know that the stock market is doing well. We know that credit markets are really robust. Um, I'm looking at these indications. The one thing that we don't know is why people aren't getting paid more. And I noticed that the one decline in the indicators was for average weekly hours. Yeah, that's that's just a bounce. I don't know that there's any trend there, but certainly the lack of more pickup in wages and therefore more pickup inflation has indeed been one of the one of the strange things, one of the unanswered questions, not just this month but really for the last 2 years. We keep saying it's going to come, the labor market keeps getting tighter. Um the question is when and indeed when it does come, how much and that's tied uh, to decisions about how much interest rates will pick up. Notice not just that the indicators are also up, but that long-term interest rates, both U.S. and now Germany, are also starting to pick up. That's another sign of optimism, not just for the U.S., but really across the globe. Ken, uh, tell us about a commercial and industrial loans. Uh, I was looking at those results. Well, you know, the combination, and again, coming back to what we are just talking about, you know, where's the inflation here? And yet profits are still good. Loan demand has started to pick up. It's like it's hard to see any, you know, any part of the economy uh, that's beginning to stutter a little bit. In fact, just the opposite. If anything, there are these sort of signs that I'm suggesting that if growth doesn't continue at the same pace, it's more likely that it'll be a little bit stronger than a little bit weaker. I guess I'm struggling with this idea of inflation. I mean, this is the big question. This is the reason why there is so much disagreement with respect to the the sort of course of, of, of bonds and where they're headed. I mean, right now we're seeing yields tick up perhaps because of Mario Draghi and what he said today. No, no, no. Uh, it, no, but, no. But, 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 but 10-year yields have been ticking up. Yes, you're right. Uh, well before that. Um, still, though, I, I mean, I understand that the, the hourly wages is not a trend, but it's concerning that there is no momentum there, certainly. No, it's concerning that it hasn't started yet that we keep saying it's still coming, and everybody believes it's still coming, that as the, as the labor market continues to generate more than 150,000 new jobs a month, 
as the unemployment rate drops below 4%. So a tight labor market getting even tighter, that's going to drive up wages. The question, when does that begin to start? How strong is it going to be? And when does that trick tip off uh, into a pickup in inflation? So that Phillips curve argument, very few people believe it's dead. All of us believe it's been asleep and it's about to wake up. So just to be clear, the Phillips curve, whenever people say these things, just in case anyone doesn't know what that is, it's the idea of an inverse correlation between uh, a low jobless rate and inflation. So ideally, when the market does get really tight and the jobless rate goes very far down, you should see increases in wages and increases in inflation. We haven't seen that correlation and people are wondering why and whether it just has to yet to start. So I just like to describe it. All right. Well, Kent can, can also help me understand the diffusion index and what can we learn from the diffusion index? Well, this is really important because, as I was just saying before, it's like it's not just the labor market. It's not just the financial market. It really goes across the board um, into virtually every segment of the economy. So the fact that not only do we have this strong upward momentum in the economy, could you know, and we're only talking about two, two and a half percent GDP growth. We're not talking about more than that. And yet, it's that much. Could even tick up a little bit higher, but it's spread out across the across all the sectors. Of the it's economy. diffuse, hence the name of the it's index. It's not only diffuse across industry; it's diffuse also across regions. Uh, and so that is a further suggestion uh, that this thing is not going to fall apart anytime real soon. How far out does this uh, do the leading economic indicators? predict maybe the next three to six months okay because this is this is helpful to remember because we're hearing from davos a lot of big thinkers and big investors and big executives say they expect the economy in the u.s to be good and robust for the next 12 months but this tells us nothing about what happens after that right it, it this doesn't tell us anything about that but this kind of momentum as i was just suggesting you know it's not going to fall off the cliff in one day if it's going to start to decline that's going to happen gradually, and there's no sign here, uh, not in the indicators, not in most of the forecasts, not in terms of what the bond market's telling us, that in the next 12 to 18 months, we're going to see any big significant drop, absent a big economic shock. Really quickly, 10 seconds. How long does it take before you start seeing the signs in the leading indicators before the downturn actually starts? Three to six months. Thank you so much. Really helpful to uh, have you on and break it down, as always. Ken Goldstein, who is an economist with the conference board, talking about the December leading economic indi uh, indicators uh, showing ongoing strength, uh, certainly over the next three to six months in the United States. An increase of six-tenths of a percent in December. That's right. Well, right now I'm looking at a headline that gets me a little bit depressed. The doomsday clock just moved. It's now two minutes to midnight, the symbolic hour of the apocalypse. This is from the Washington Post. Here to put my mind at ease, make me more worried, Jack Devine. He is founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, also a member of the Council of Foreign Relations. Uh, and he uh, is also the author of Good Hunting, a spy master's story, uh, former acting uh, director of the CIA. Jack. I'm having too much uh, fun in life to be uh, worried about doomsday. So right. I'm, I'm so, an optimist. All right. Let's talk about North Korea. 
right now. Oh, um, now, now, now we can shift to doomsday. <laughs> All right. So where are we in this? You know, it's been uh, one year into Trump's tenure. Uh, we are seeing uh, not a lot of progress. Where's the threat right now? I think he actually blinked. Um, Who's he? Uh, Kim Jong Un. I mean, I think. You know, first of all, I would say off the right off the top that I don't see any military resolution of this. There is no good way to resolve this militarily. I don't see how uh, we could engage, take out the sites. So I've been from the very beginning of the most recent flare-up in the relationships with uh, with North Korea, uh, pushing the thought that we need to return to the table. So does, I, does the Trump administration adhere to that? Do they? Well, it's it's. I think the Trump administration has taken a strong line. Uh, interestingly enough, South Korea, the new President Moon, have sort of tried to warm up relations, and the question was whether Kim Jong Un was going to respond. And I find it interesting that he has now going to participate with the South Koreans in the Olympics and uh, and is talking to them. Now, I would hope that. Behind closed doors, we're trying to expand those talks into the old six parties, China, Russia, uh, South Korea ourselves, and, and try and come up with a, uh, a some sort of temporary solution. Just slow him down. We're not going to, he's not going to roll back his nuclear program, but he's moving too fast and we don't have a military solution. So I think going back to the table, negotiating some sort of temporary uh, arrangement uh, I think is our best course of action. Uh, Go ahead. I, I was just going to say on China, <laughs> I was just going to say one thing on China that, you know, the Trump administration is putting a lot of its uh, uh, betting on China's support. I've been agnostic about that at best all along, but I do take some comfort recently if you believe the Chinese official statement that they've cut off uh, coal and oil supplies, fuel supplies to China I mean, if they actually stay the course and increase the pressure, then there's more more incentive to get uh, North Korea to the table. But they're not abandoning the program. The question is whether or not we can stabilize it about where it is today. Well, since you mentioned China, then I've got to ask you about this uh, continuing uh, news story about the Jerry uh, Shunqing Lee, naturalized U.S. citizen. He now lives in Hong Kong. He was taken into custody at the JFK airport, a former CIA case <coughs> officer, and uh, he's under arrest on charges of illegally retaining highly classified information relating to U.S. spy networks in China. Well... First of all, let me self-reveal again. I'm of the view that uh, in the intelligence world, we always have a mole. You know, if you're the director of CIA, and I've talked to a lot of them as they've gone in, I've made the point that they're somewhere in the institution. There's a there's a mole. It's part of the business. We have moles within the Russian system, within the Chinese system. I'm sure we have them, and and have had for years, and they have had had and ours. Is finding those moles and finding out how much damage they've done. I was very familiar with the Hansen and Rick Ames cases. And what was interesting, and this is from the public domain, that at the beginning when they started to lose, uh, uh, the agency was beginning to lose Chinese assets, it was, well, it must be bad tradecraft in China. And then it was, it must have been a communication. They must have hacked into something. This is very reminiscent of the hunt for Rick Ames. At the beginning, no one could accept the fact that you had a, a traitor in your midst. Who could do that? Who could be a, 
in CIA, be a member and be a traitor. And uh, we, people should ask themselves, well, why do you think that others betray themselves when they're working the system? But eventually it became obvious that we had a, uh, there was a, a penetration. And it's part of, uh, part of doing business, but part of doing business is also being vigilant on this point. And I think, uh, I think this is just another reminder, too bad it's so painful. All right, so I just wanted to follow up with this because I'm wondering what your perspective is on the uh, president's comments and attitude, it seems to be, that is sometimes put out in public on Twitter, uh, characterizing either the FBI but also the CIA and the U.S. security forces. Well, I think the burden of the criticism has been directed more to the FBI and surrounding the Correct. investigation. Um, I think it's worthwhile remembering the very first official government act uh, and and visit was to the CIA, okay? Uh, I think he has a very good, it's uh, demonstrably good with the director of, of CIA. The uh, one thing about, as I reflect on what people in CIA and military tend to like is uh, strong, decisive leadership, and then from there flows it's less political after that. Half the people in CIA, I'm sure, sure, I'm inclined to believe vote Democratic Party, and the other half vote the Republican Party. It's made up pretty much of what America is. But there is a common thing, which is decisiveness and leadership. So I, I, I question sort of just how much um, uh, turmoil there is around this issue in the CIA. The FBI, of course, is going through what I think is very. Uh, horrendous uh, situation. I hope they, uh, for our country, I hope this passes quickly. For the, we need the FBI, but there are there are real problems that need to be addressed. So, uh, with with respect to uh, President Trump, he's been in office a year. Do you think that uh, the U.S. is in a more dangerous spot because of our uh, perhaps less robust relationships with some of our allies, like Canada? One of the things that I think. Uh, it always struck me through the years is the public and private behavior of foreign governments, perhaps even our own. And that is, you might have public outcries, but I will tell you in the back rooms of around the world, it's still the predominant. So how do you get along with the U.S. government? It's so important to the lives of everybody in every country that most most of our major allies are looking for ways to 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 deal with us. In Davos, it's going to be very interesting, the sidebar discussions. So I think what they're not used to right now, the foreign governments, is that the uh, the president is exerting uh, pretty a, a very strong position that's not sort of consensus-driven, and I think they're making adjustments. But um, I don't think any of the alliances are are at risk. It just they need to figure out how to deal with it with the new president of the United States. Jack Devine, thank you very much. Uh, please come back and spend more time with us. We've uh, barely touched uh, on a variety of topics that, uh, of course, are interesting to our listeners and uh, around the world. Jack Devine is the founding partner and president of the Arkin Group, uh, and he is the author of Good Hunting, a Spy Master's Story. And he, of course, is also a former acting uh, head of and associate director of the CIA uh, Central Intelligence Agency.
Right now, I want to turn our attention to airlines. We talked about them a little bit earlier. United shares uh, down, wow, oh my goodness, in the past two days, down more than 14%, the most for two days going back to June 2016. Here to talk about it is George Ferguson, Bloomberg Senior Aerospace Defense and Airline Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, George, what happened here? Can you just give us a lay of the land? Yeah, so investors uh, are very focused right now on the amount of capacity coming to the airline market, especially the domestic U.S. market. Uh, and, uh, you know, United, a, a big participant in that market. And so anything that was well above GDP was going to concern uh, investors that they were going to dilute fares, push push fares just, lower. Just, just to be clear about what capacity is. In other words, they are right. expanding the locations that they're serving, correct? Oh, yeah. Well, so United is trying to serve their hubs better. United has a lot of great hubs in the U.S., and they want more frequency. They want more flights in and out of those hubs um, so that they can – they've basically had peeled back some of that service over the last decade or so. And so they want they want to expand that service. They want more of a domestic U.S. footprint, I think is what it all boils down to, because domestic U.S. – yields, which is the price a customer pays per mile they're flown, are higher than any other market in the world. United's are lower in the U.S. than their peers uh, over at Delta. And so they they want to change that. They want to get yields from the U.S. that are as good as Delta, and they see that as their avenue to getting profitability as good as Delta. So they're expanding capacity into their hubs. Hey, George, do the airlines have a mismatch when it comes to the actual equipment, the aircraft that they're using on the routes that they want to expand? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if they have a, a mismatch. You know, I think one of the interesting things about United is if you look at some of their service in the United States as part of this expansion for um, more U.S. market share, you'll see them flying 777s coast to coast into L.A. and things like that. You don't see that out of their competitors. Right. I mean, I think, you know, United is flying a lot of business between their major hubs, and there's a lot of traffic back and forth between places like Newark and L.A. Um, actually, L.A. is not their hub, sorry, Newark and San Francisco, uh, Newark and Chicago, and, and and into Houston. So they're flying some bigger gauges, and I think that's part of the problem is United wants to be servicing some of the smaller markets. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, right. Well, that's uh, where know. I was going because, I mean, I was listening to comments from the uh, – from the uh, commercial jet uh, head of uh, Embra Air, and I know Embra Air and Boeing, you know, they're talking about some kind of type, but they were saying that the reason that uh, Boeing is interested in Embra Air is because Boeing and Airbus have more difficulty shrinking the size of their equipment in order to meet the right size demand, and it's better to actually focus on smaller aircraft that might have to be expanded. And that depends what market you're going right. into. So as I was about to say, if you're going into Rochester, Minnesota, which I think is one of the examples we heard the other day, yeah, you might want a 100-seater or a 130-seater. And that looks like an, an Embraer 195. That looks like a Bombardier C-Series. We heard in the JetBlue call today, JetBlue said they're sort of rethinking their Embraer 195 fleet. And given the Airbus and Bombardier you know, joint venture with C-Series, they see new opportunities. They're a very Airbus-focused uh, shop. So that's an example where, you know, an airline's looking for the right gauge to get into those smaller markets, George, the right size. What's the rationale of United, and why do they think it's going to be good for their business, and why is it being taken exactly the opposite by the market? 
Yeah, so you know they're they're adding a lot of capacity. They're looking at four to six percent more capacity this year, which is well above GDP growth, which is typically dilutive of fares. And what they want to do is they they're trying to go after these better fares that they see in the U.S. that Delta and American have captured over the last decade or so, going into those smaller markets like Rochester and connecting Rochester into a major hub. Because if you're, if you're service, you know, there's one or two airlines servicing a small market, there's less competition for that flyer. That flyer pays more money. United let that go to their competitors, and now they want it back because U.S. fares are better than the rest of the world. That's going to create a market share battle. That's going to cost everybody, uh, you know, the fair price. You have to push the fair price lower to fill those airplanes. Thanks very much. George Ferguson, our senior aerospace defense and airlines analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. It's a big day today uh, in currency markets. I'm looking at the dollar spot right now at the weakest level since December 2014. The euro is strengthening against the U.S. dollar. That has reached uh, the strongest levels since 2016. Have we reached a tipping point? Steve Englander joins us now. He is head of research and strategy at Rafiki Capital Management. He is also a Bloomberg prophet. Stephen, uh, thank you so much for being with us. So are we? Are we at some kind of uh, threshold of a bigger move? Is this a capitulation? Is this sort of uh, the calm before a bigger storm? Look, you know, the uh, euro has moved, the dollar has moved a certain amount. And, and I think to some degree, the, the question is going to be how the Fed responds to this. Um, I think if they show any kind of tolerance for inflation drifting and, and you know, staying temporarily above 2%, the dollar's got a much further to go. Um, you already see that in that U.S. real interest rates haven't gone up despite the upward move in inflation expectations. So the market doesn't really see that much hawkishness there. Um, you know, if they, they come out and they say, look, 2% is 2% and that's our target, then, then we'll probably see the dollar stabilize within a couple of percent of where we are. Are right now. Stephen Englander, could you comment on China, its U.S. Treasury holdings, and what you see for the future? Yeah, look, you know, I, I think that the um I think conventional thinking is that they, they have the U.S. over a barrel because they, they hold so many treasuries. Um, you know, I, I think correct thinking is that the U.S. has them over a barrel both ways. One is that they're very much dependent on trade with the U.S. Obviously, they ship a lot more to the U.S. and the U.S. ships to them. So if there's a full-fledged trade war, there's a lot more Chinese factories and jobs are going to be lost in U.S. jobs. And the second is that, yeah, they can fire a cannonball through the U.S. Treasury market, but that cannonball is going to do a boomerang and go right through them because they own so many of it, and it's really hard to sell. So I think that right now they, they would love to be in a different position, but they're, they're actually kind of on the weaker side, I think, of these uh, you know, trade issues. Okay, so having said that, why is it that you continue that that it's possible to find you know very smart people who give you the opposite version? I mean, clearly they don't pay, they've never played poker with someone that owes them money. Um, yeah, look, I I, I think. Uh, you know, it's hard to explain. It takes two people, it takes you know, two to make a market. But uh, there are different ways of approaching it. And I would say that the the, the one advantage that China has in all this dickering is that um, they can pull together an army of 
formal and informal lobbyists to argue their case in Washington. Um, you know, it's much harder for the U.S. to do that, to do that in Beijing. So um, they may not have the best position, but they probably can um, handle their position better than the U.S. can, at least in you know the public sphere. So, uh, Stephen, uh, leaving China aside, the U.S. Treasury Department is going to sell treasuries in larger chunks throughout the year this year. That is the expectation of a lot of people. The U.S. has to fund a deficit that is widely expected to increase by a trillion dollars or more over the next decade. Um, I'm looking at a 10-year Treasury yield that is the highest in a very long time. I'm looking at a German 10-year yield also breaching the highest levels in years. How high are we headed with the U.S. 10-year yield and what's going to be sort of uh, the trajectory here? Is it going to be at some point a steady upward climb or are we going to see kind of a choppy give some, take some, give some, take some? Well, look, you know, in, in while it's in motion, it's always choppy in retrospect. You, you know, you can look on the chart and say that was a pretty straight line. You know, look, U.S. nominal GDP growth is going to be somewhere between four and a half and five percent uh, this year. Uh, treasuries running two sixty five by historical metrics are, are pretty low, and we spent the the last you know six or seven years telling ourselves that we're in a different world. That you know the 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 phrase the the Fed talks about R star uh, real interest rate uh, equilibrium real interest rates are are zero. Um, now it looks as if we're kind of getting back into a world that we're familiar with, where you know we've become slightly more worried about inflation than disinflation, and where uh, confidence that investment is going to pick up, housing is relatively strong. That's back there. So yeah, upward pressure on rates, I think, is is, is still going to be there. Two sixty five is not that high relative to where we are. Stephen Englander, uh, just quickly, do you think that a uh, falling uh, the fallen value of the U.S. dollar is going to help the U.S. economy? Marginally, I, I, I look. You know, the, the 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 sad fact of the last ten years or twenty years is that everybody talks about the currency, but the actual impact on activity is low. Impact on earnings is much higher because of translation effects. But how many jobs a week or dollar creates? I'd say it's uh, you know pretty minimal. So no effect in terms of things also like trade policy. You think that's going to help the economy? No, well, small effect, right? The you know ten percent depreciation of the dollar. It's like you put a. 10% subsidy to exports, 10% uh, tariff on imports. It right. matters, but it just doesn't matter that much. All right. Thanks very much uh, for helping us understand this. Steve Englander is the head of research and strategy at Rafiki Capital. He is also a Bloomberg profit, and Bloomberg profits are professionals offering actionable insights on markets, the economy, and monetary policy, and contributors may have a stake in the areas about which they write. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.